AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. The Volume Charles Darwin. The Nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today, we've got lots of interesting NBA to talk with you all, but we have to start with the Los Angeles Lakers, Logan. We haven't had the chance yet to discuss their ultimate victory in the in-season tournament, what they did to the Indiana Pacers. We talked throughout last week about how impressive they'd looked up to that point, but what did you take away from that showing and how the Lakers have really started to put things together here? Well, first, uh, focusing on the in-season tournament, uh, like you mentioned, we talked in-depth uh, with Jason Timph leading up to it and what a you know massive success we thought the in-season tournament yeah. was. And I think considering the results of the first in-season tournament, uh, I think it was even more of a success. And why do I say that? Well, you know, I think if a... You know, if a young and upcoming team had won it, it would have been really exciting. You know, you get to crown a you know young and upcoming superstar mm-hmm. like Tyrese Halliburton, like Zion Williamson, uh, whoever it would have been that you know came away with it. But I just think it adds some real legitimacy, some credence, totally. some weight to the tournament that it needed. You know, it is a new concept. A lot of people were really critical and skeptical of it and wondered would it be successful. I was one of those people. I didn't know if. Players would be incentivized to play super hard. Uh, There were debates about, you know, should there be an automatic bid into the playoffs? Is it enough for the guys to really go out there and play hard? Not only did the players take pride in it, you know, they they, they really cared. But LeBron and the Lakers winning it adds hella weight to this moving forward. You know, because the first one ever is the biggest, two biggest brands in the sport. You know what I mean? So... I think if we're looking at this from the bigger scope with the in-season tournament, I think that it's going to be a staple for years to come. And I kind of like it, man. Uh, what about you? Like, I know they're going to hang the banner in the Staples Center. I think it's cool. It's like uh, the way I saw somebody explain it uh, was really well. Um, like soccer, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you play a cup instead of, you know, it's not your, your league cup where you're winning the yeah. championship that's most important. But, you know, it's still another nice banner and trophy. It's something to take pride in. Uh, what do you think mm-hmm. about... Because I don't think it's over-celebrated. I mean, I think it's a big accomplishment. Um, and I'm all for the banner hanging and, you know, treating this as a big deal. Yeah. The banner might be a little bit much at this point just because we still haven't fully established the stakes and the significance of this. But it was absolutely an amazing debut for the tournament. Totally agree with you on how positive it is for the league and for this event that the Lakers won it and that everybody took this so seriously that we had really high quality quarterfinals and semifinals and above all else that the biggest name and face in the league LeBron James at almost 39 years old in year 21 nobody would be more justified in writing off really any stretch of the non-postseason 
and yet he took this as seriously as anybody and it was just great for the product and it was great for legitimizing the in-season tournament and to people who try to diminish that and be like why are they celebrating so much over a early december win against the indiana pacers you're just not getting the picture that's not how anybody treated this and thank god they didn't because it did add a really exciting dimension to a regular season that i think a lot of us agree is too long and often it feels like there isn't really stakes night tonight so i don't know that we can have any sort of big picture context when we're talking about hanging this up in stadiums when people are talking about legitimately already legacy stuff we just don't know how things are going to progress but it was an awesome start and there's no denying that and the lakers rose to a really high level to go out there and win it and it gave us a pretty clear picture of what some of these teams are going to look like in playoff settings because this was the closest simulation to playoff basketball that you can possibly have in the regular season and I'm all for that. It was awesome. I'm so glad you said that because that's exactly what this felt like. You know, a tune-up early season. Yeah, to give you a picture of what these teams are going to look like playing hard, real, mm-hmm. playoff-style basketball. And I do think you're right. The final thing on the in-season tournament I'll say is, you're right, we're not going to know the full extent of what this means until we have a couple years of in-season tournaments to look back on. But it is going to be up to the players every single year playing hard that's going to make it serious. You know what I mean? If it's Once the players start treating it like it doesn't mean anything, that's when it's going Mm -hmm. to fall off. I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope that uh, every year moving forward they do. For the Lakers on the whole, uh, outside of the last game we saw where Dante Exum uh, obliterated the Lakers, that was crazy, man. Yeah. Uh, Seven of nine threes. Uh, How many did he make in the fourth? What did he make, like four or five? It was ridiculous, man. Yeah. the Lakers didn't switch their defensive strategy. They are without Jared Vanderbilt in that game. Uh, but just kind of, Darvin Ham said it after the game. He was like, the analytics said that we should sag off of Axum. <laughs> I don't know, man. I've played a lot of basketball, not NBA basketball. I've played a lot of pickup. When oh, a guy, no kidding. When a guy starts yanging everything, you know, I'm yeah. going to probably move a warm body over next to him. But, you know, on the whole, the Lakers uh, have looked really good, and I think, there are some encouraging things to take away from this stretch. Uh, primarily, they're second in defensive rating right now. And this is a team that, they are a team that is going to have to win games on the back of their defense. That is the identity of this team. They are good at turning defense into offense, at dominating on that end, at making big-time plays and suffocating the other team. That's how they're going to win games. And uh, I think with the return of some of their athletes and Jared Vanderbilt, we've seen them take a big leap forward. Uh, Anthony Davis has been a huge part of that. I still think he's the best defensive player on planet earth. Uh, In this stretch, they're eight and four in their last 12. In the last 12 games, he's holding players 12.5% below their average field goal percentage inside six feet. Uh, That's fourth among players with at least seven or more uh, field goals defended inside of six feet. And I think I've been really encouraged by what we've seen, uh, uh, from Anthony Davis offensively, too, Carson. Yeah. A little more physical. We've seen some nice jump shooting, specifically against the Mavs. 37-11 and 11 when he didn't really look at... And he didn't look at full strength. You know what I mean? He didn't look at 100%, and he still went out there yeah. and balled. Uh, so, we've talked about the Lakers a lot. LeBron and AD certainly seem like they can reach a high enough level to give this team a, a championship-level ceiling. The role players are playing better, uh, defending well, shooting well. And uh, as Jason, a uh, friend of the show, uh, host of Hoops Tonight, you guys should go check out his content. He does basically breakdowns every day. As he's mentioned a myriad of times, Carson, D'Angelo Russell is going to get dealt. It's going to help them uh, find somebody else on the trade market come uh, deadline time. And he's playing awesome basketball. So I think this is the best value you're going to get for D'Angelo Russell in the last couple of years. I think they can actually get some, uh, you know, uh, I think his value is a little higher than it normally would be because of how good he's playing. Things are really trending upwards for the Lakers, Carson. It seems like, uh, I don't know, I, I I still, I take the Lakers as a legitimate championship contender, man. I think they might be, they're two or three for me. Again, we still need to see how other things shake out. The Suns at full strength. We just saw Bradley Beal return. I want to see their three-headed monster, but a lot of the things that I noted in preseason, man, it's, it, it, we're tr- the Lakers are trending in the right direction, man. It's, it's really encouraging. This was an extremely encouraging stretch of basketball again because of the playoff-esque stakes and environment and seeing LeBron rise to his peak level and exert the sort of effort 
night in, night out for the entire game that we normally don't see from him in the regular season. He was outstanding throughout this tournament. And it's pretty simple to me. If you're looking at the question marks that we had about the Lakers, when it came time to really rise to the occasion and play meaningful basketball, they really checked all of them in this stretch. Can AD and LeBron be more consistently great than last season? I'm not saying we can just project this to an entire playoff run, but boy, have they both been dominant. Over this past week, last four games, LeBron is averaging 38-8 on 62% true shooting. AD is averaging 30-15 and 2.5 blocks per game on 62% true shooting. Then, could Austin Reeves, who has been much maligned through the early stages of this season, play up to the level that he was at last year, where he was a legitimately good third option. He has been exceptional over this last week, giving you 22-5-5 on 67% true shooting. And then, with the issues we had seen early in this year from their point of attack defense, could they reach the same defensive ceiling that they did last year, where they were the best defense in the playoff field? And I say yes to that. And AD is the driving factor there. He was terrifyingly great in that Pacers game. And no, I don't expect him to always be that aggressive and that effective offensively, but he absolutely can defend at that level night in, night out. He is the best defensive player on the planet and anchored a phenomenal defensive showing against Halley. And we had talked about how Halley was really impervious to being disrupted by any defensive coverage he had been so efficient out of every action against every look and basically every personnel grouping that teams had thrown at him and he still played fine against the Lakers but he certainly didn't dominate in the same way that we're accustomed to and I think that you have to give Vando and Reddish a tremendous amount of credit for that those guys both have great length they're big very good athletes who can apply back pressure out of pick and roll, who can take away passing angles when they are blitzing Halley, which they did frequently. And AD is also pivotal there. He's so agile in space. He's so big, so long. He's so good positionally. He also took away some passing angles where you can see, okay, Halley wants to hit the roller. That's normally the right read in this situation. It's just not there. He's got to try to improvise midair. He just wasn't able to always hit the optimal pass, which we know if you aren't going to actively take away those angles, he will do. And then also LeBron was good as the low man. They had to trust him when they're blitzing out of pick and roll. And he made a couple brilliant plays anticipating how he's passes. And you see his IQ just can allow him to make plays defensively that other dudes can't. So it was a phenomenal collective defensive performance against one of the best offensive players in basketball. And even when they started trying to run pick and roll actions that wouldn't involve AD, where instead of having Miles Turner as the screener, it was Buddy Heald, it was another one of the guards. I mean, if those guys tried to attack the paint, AD was offering unbelievable help. And overall, Forcing the other Pacers to try to beat them in these four-on-three situations proved to be a great call because the team defense was so sharp and those guys just weren't uh, consistently good enough as decision makers, as threats off the bounce to really punish that. So they had great defensive personnel, they had a really good game plan, and they slowed Halley and the Pacers down. Didn't stop them, but slowed them down in a way that we haven't really seen other teams do. AD... Gets the most credit there, but it's a testament to the overall ceiling that this team defense has that we bet on the driving factor and why they can be a contender. It's can they be the best defense in the field and then be good enough offensively and rely on their superstar talents down the stretch to make enough big plays offensively. That's always been the formula. And AD was phenomenal offensively in that game too. You saw a level of aggression from him, exploiting his advantages quicker than Miles Turner. He was very willing to attack him off the bounce. He had his jump shot going in this one. And by the way, really had his touch shot making against the Mavs too. He had been abysmal for mid-range, abysmal as a jump shooter. I still think that's always going to be an inconsistent trait of his. It can't be the bedrock of his offensive game. But when it's going, boy, the ceiling is something else. And then he attacked the glass aggressively and killed it with second chance points, both against Indiana and the Mavs. He was fighting for position and finishing strong when he had a mismatch on the interior. Like, it was just the best version of Anthony Davis. And no, I don't expect him to do that night in, night out for a 20-game playoff run. 
After what we saw last year, I just don't know how you can. There's going to be really high highs offensively, and then there's going to be nights where you're just disappointed. But seeing him reach that level at all in a game with this sort of stakes was encouraging. So there's two teams out West who I look at and I think they can match up well with Denver and they can make that series a dogfight. Certainly wouldn't pick either one to beat Denver, but it's the Minnesota Timberwolves who have been the best regular season team in basketball and are a good matchup defensively because they have these two big looks and just an overall great ceiling there. And then they have their star talent offensively in Anthony Edwards. But I think the Lakers are scarier. And I've been hesitant to crown a number two in the West just because I feel like my opinions on these teams have changed and it's been tough to find a team outside of Minnesota that's been consistently great, but then Minnesota isn't quite as proven in that playoff setting. I worry a bit about their offensive ceiling when you're talking about taking on a juggernaut like Denver, but seeing what LA is capable of in a playoff-ish setting, I'm sold because you get that version of AD, you get that version of LeBron, who I absolutely believe in, and I think come playoff time, is going to be one of the five guys who I want most, which I did not expect coming into this year because obviously he was dealing with the injury last year, but just wasn't consistently the dominant offensive force that we're used to in that playoff run. For him to be this rejuvenated, this brilliant, is just remarkable. Reeves, I'm absolutely a believer in. I'm not worried about any sort of regression from him. And then I think if you look at some of the complementary pieces, Cam Reddish is a weapon that they didn't have last year. Because if you were going to try to send out a big athletic wing defender who could stay on those point of attack matchups, who could affect a Steph Curry with his length, it had to be Jared Vanderbilt. And now they have a guy who brings those same defensive traits and can also shoot and therefore isn't unplayable offensively. If he keeps this level up, I legitimately think he is an important chess piece for them come playoff time. And I still do think they're going to make that move at the deadline that will improve them because they can eliminate some of the redundancies with Russell and Reeves. So absolutely, I think you have to take this sample seriously. This was the three-game stretch where we saw what the Lakers look like when they really care. And it was about as impressive a three-game stretch as we've seen from anybody all year against really, really good teams. And it showed us what they're capable of. 100%. Uh, just to add on a couple of things that you touched on with Anthony Davis, no, I don't ever think that he will get back to like that consistent level that you're talking about that we saw during the finals run, but I think it is encouraging that you see against uh, advantageous matchups where you talk about his quickness versus Miles Turner. AD just has an advantage over centers who are, you know, kind of uncoordinated, kind of lumbering. Like, I think you see it in the Turner and Derek Lively matchups. Like, AD is faster than those guys. He's in more control. He can fake those guys out more. Like, And that's why I say coordinated, right? He's not going to have an advantage over a lumbering guy like Jokic because Jokic is one of the most coordinated big guys ever. But I think AD in certain matchups can take advantage more than uh, – it's very matchup dependent with AD. But in those advantageous matchups, I trust him. And then I just want to give a shout-out to a couple other guys that you didn't mention. I think Cam Reddish is huge to this. Shout-out to Ari and Prince. Uh defensively and shooting and then Hachimura I know he struggled offensively he isn't the spot-up marksman that he was in the playoffs last year but defensively again you're talking about length size strength that he brings to the table I, they're just versatile man there's a lot of options that the Lakers can turn to and uh I'm legitimately excited man as a guy that picked the Lakers to win the title in the preseason I'm I'm legitimately excited at the prospect of what they're going to do during the deadline to to really upgrade man like do you think they can get a do you think they can get a big fish by 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 slinging D'Lo and, and a pick or, or somebody else out there too? I think they are going to be able to turn D'Angelo Russell into someone who makes them meaningfully better. And I don't know if they're going to target a guy like Zach Levine, who's a star name, who brings that offensive punch, but isn't the most ideal two-way fit. Or I don't know if it's going to be a guy who we've talked about preferring for them, who can defend really well at the point of attack, who fits in well enough offensively, who can shoot, who's comfortable putting the ball on the floor. Just a really good complimentary basketball player. I think Delo's playing well enough. I think if they have a pick to attach to that, they're going to make something happen. The Lakers just have a way in this LeBron era of making good value moves 
for role players, and I expect them to do that again. But this is the vision that I think we both had in the preseason. I wasn't quite as bullish on them as you. I didn't pick them to win the title, but I did have them as my second best team out West. And this is the most confident that I've been in those preseason expectations all year. So props to the Lakers. The big story of yesterday though, Logan, was not really about basketball. It was Draymond Green getting ejected yet again for effectively throwing a punch at Yusuf Nurkic, a very strange interaction where Nurk is guarding him out of the post and he's doing a little tugging on his jersey and Draymond tries to make it look like he's just flailing because of the contact, but it's pretty clearly a targeted swipe at Nurk's face at the very least, just a totally unnatural movement. And this just continues a trend of Draymond doing these out of line physical acts and getting himself thrown out of games and getting himself in trouble at a rate that we haven't seen even in his career, although that has been his reputation. So what do you make of that? I just, I understand setting the tone, man. There are guys that you need in, in every sport, uh, to set the tone, you know, you kind of sometimes you like those guys. Pat Bev, the little irritants, man, the uh, the enforcers in hockey. You know what I mean? Sometimes you need guys like that to pick at the other team. And Dre's been really good at that, man. He can play head games with the best of them. But when it's reckless, when it's costing your team, when it's a three point loss, and like Steve Kerr said after the game, we need Draymond. Draymond yeah. helps us win games. I mean, that's a difference. I mean, there's a fine line between. Again, setting the tone and directly costing your team and hurting them deliberately. Again, when we look at this actual play, I don't understand what Dre's doing. Like, did you really expect you were going to get away with that? I mean, he full-on just discus punches Nurkic, man. He had a WWE move on homeboy. He was trying to hit the finisher. Knock his ass out. Uh, To quote Yusuf Nurkic, that brother needs help. That was a funny-ass quote, man. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like I said, man, I understand the the guys that you need, man. The Rick Mahorns of the world, the Charles Oakleys, the the press some buttons. But it's just gotten to the point where Draymond is directly hurting the team, and he's a valuable, valuable asset. He's shooting the hell out of the ball this year. Uh, he hasn't been as good defensively, but he's still a, a great defensive weapon, you know. So it's just it's got to be frustrating. And again, this is a Warriors team that I mean has not looked. The benches look good. All the top dogs outside of Steph have failed to pull their weight. Wiggins, Clay, Dre, and after this, because, I mean, this is following, like you mentioned, a double-tech game in Cleveland where he shoves Donovan Mitchell. This is following, a, you know, uh, where he puts Rudy Gobert in a freaking chokehold, man. Yeah. Uh, the only question that popped in my head at the end of this game, Carson, was, you know, is it time to blow it up? Like, is it time to put this thing to rest? I don't know. Like, is Dre getting frustrated with losing? Is... Does he hate Nurkic? I, I don't know, man. I'm. I, I, it's got to be frustrating as, as a Warriors fan, man, because this team is too talented and has such a great track record. But uh, they just can't get out of their own way. I, I, I don't know what it is, man, but the we were talking about the ship sinking in Golden State, man. This is uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of weight pulling the boat down right now, man. A little more drama to add on top. Well, you certainly can't blow it up because you have to make the most – of Steph's window, there is no way that you are going to get requisite value on the open market for Draymond, and he is still invaluable to this team. When you consider the elite defense that he has consistently made them when he is on the floor and the fact that when he's off the floor, they haven't been very good there at all. When you consider how he conducts the offense, his playmaking, his IQ there, he is having a career shooting season. That to me is a total non-starter, right? There are other dudes who are playing poorly enough and who aren't as essential to the core construction of this team where you can talk about moving them. Draymond, it's a non-starter, but this is inexcusable. And You talk about needing the enforcers, needing the antagonists, needing the irritants. That's what's so strange and unique about this situation is this is not one of those. This is a no ambiguity, clear cut. He just totally started and finished this himself. This isn't Sabonis maybe tripping him right and it's a play where he could get injured and then stomping on his chest. 
absolutely out of line, excessive, but provoked. This isn't him putting Gobert in a chokehold, absolutely <laughs> excessive, how long he held on to that for, excessive, but that's in the middle of a legitimate scuffle in which Gobert is holding his other teammate, Clay Thompson, and maybe he doesn't have a great angle on what's happening, right? Those are situations where he's escalating where things have already started to go south. This, I mean, it's not even a foul on Yusuf Nurkic, dude. He's just literally tugging on his jersey a little bit as they're grappling for position. And that's what's so inexcusable to me. That's what's so mind-boggling. That's not him going at the opposing team's best player and trying to get in their head in a calculated way. That's literally him just, I guess, overcome with frustration and willing to take himself out of a basketball game just to let it out. And that is such a negative for this team because Logan, you mentioned the Kerr quote about how they need Draymond out there. They absolutely do. Like him getting thrown out of these games, him getting a five game suspension is having a very negative impact on this team. The Cavs game from which he got ejected, close loss. The T-Wolves game from which he got ejected in the opening couple minutes, close loss. This game against the Suns now from which he got ejected, close loss. The games he's outright missed, the Warriors are 2-5 and five in. So that's an overall 2-8 and eight record in games where Draymond is either unavailable or he takes himself out of the game too early because of an ejection. And it's just really sad to me because of what this is doing to Draymond's legacy. I am a huge fan of Draymond Green's basketball game. In my early adolescence, he was my favorite basketball player on the planet. I had a Draymond Green jersey. I think that he does so many great things that a large portion of basketball fans will just never fully appreciate because there's such an obsession with offensive skill and particularly one-on-one scoring, and Draymond is really inept there, right? He's got no bag whatsoever. For most of his career, he hasn't been able to shoot. He's not a super cool vertical athlete. He doesn't have crazy fluidity, but what he is is an all-time defender and really a one-of-one weapon in NBA history there because how many other guys have been this elite as a perimeter defender and this elite as an interior defender? Maybe you could argue that Kevin Garnett is there, but this sort of versatility has, I think, changed how modern NBA defenses try to build their defenses. And he has captained a bunch of elite units there. And as I mentioned, like we just saw in the title year, right? They were the number one defense by far when Draymond was healthy. And then they were 20 something in the games that he missed. Last year, I argued he should be defensive player of the year and that he was still the best defensive player on the planet because they had the best defense in the league when he was on the floor again. And I think they were like somewhere in the mid twenties when he was off it. So that sort of impact combined with what he has been able to do offensively, contributing to four NBA titles, arguably as the second best player on two of them, like, he's just had such a fantastic basketball career. He was the second best player on the floor in a Game 7 in 2016 with LeBron James, the only guy who was better than him, Kyrie Irving, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson. Like, he is never going to be fully appreciated for the basketball genius that he is. And doing more stuff like this is just going to uh-huh. continue to cement that legacy. Think about Sheed, man. <laughs> what do people think about ball when they think lie. of Rasheed Wallace? Ball don't lie. Well, ball don't lie, that's true. But even more so, I would say, they think about a volatile personality, a guy who has the ejections record, a guy who has the single-season tax record. I mean, refs, and hated, refs hated Sheed, though, man. Well, listen, I'm not saying that that isn't part of who he was, and his legacy refs did hate him, that's true. But, of course, I mean, he was that kind of guy. He was a pugnacious fellow. But... He was also an all-star level basketball player. He was an ahead of his uh-huh. time big man who had an incredible shooting ability, who was a really high level post defender. And people don't talk about all-star Sheed. They talk about crazy man Sheed. And I just think that that is what Draymond is doing to himself, but to an even more dramatic extent where people uh-huh. legitimately hate him. They hate him because I think of how great the Warriors have been and because a lot of people don't understand his skill set and they literally think that he is just riding coattails instead uh-huh. of being the second most important player in this brilliant, brilliant decade run. So that's what really bums me out. But at the end of the day, somebody needs to put him in his place oh, yeah. on this oh, team yeah. because this very well could lead to a second suspension of the year, bro. And 
The problem is that Draymond is the leader of this team. He has always been the vocal and emotional leader. Steph and Clay, they just don't have those sort of personalities. But now he's in a place where he's gone off the rails and he is doing these things to the detriment of himself and of the team. And I don't know if the Warriors have that personality to really put him in line because Steve Kerr, I think, is a great, great basketball coach. And I think he is awesome at managing personalities but that's mostly by trusting his guys and often giving them a little bit of leeway because he knows they're great players and allowing them to be themselves. But you've now crossed a threshold where you just can't allow that. So it's disappointing. It's frustrating. This isn't 2016 where it's like, oh my God, should he have gotten suspended for kind of hitting LeBron in the nuts when the guy was stepping over him? No, I'm opposed to that when you're talking about those kind of basketball stakes. This is unprompted unwarranted, completely excessive, and it's just indefensible. The thing that I think is most frustrating about all this, Carson, is something about what you just mentioned is you know, how much of a basketball genius Draymond Green truly is. And uh, I don't just mean that defensively. You know, I mean, he's a really great offensive player, too, in terms of uh, IQ, uh, intelligence, you know, where the ball needs to go, what needs to happen defensively, positionally, where he needs to be, like, uh, you know, you talk about skill. Draymond may not be super skilled, but he's super smart, and that's what makes him a great player. It's just frustrating that a guy this smart, this basketball smart, uh, this cerebral of a basketball player can't control his temperament, and it really is hurting this team. I, you know, I do think you're right. I think somebody has to check him if it's Wiggins, if it's Curry, if it's Clay, if it's Kerr. Somebody's got to pull him aside. Uh and just get him straight, you know, get him get him aligned, man. I don't know who that guy is, but uh, I don't know, man. I, I, I'm i just worried that this is going to get worse because uh, all of this, the common denominator, is losing. And I don't know if this eventually reaches a boiling point. Does this get worse? The other guys have frustrations because that's the cure-all. The cure-all in any sport, when you're having any drama, is winning games and... Dre is actively hurting them, and there's not really anything encouraging that's pointing to this team having a dramatic turnaround. So, I don't know. I just don't want to see this get worse, but uh, winning is the only thing that's going to cure these these symptoms, these issues. Yeah. Man. No, I think you're right. We can't just look at this and say that it's a coincidence when the Warriors are having their least successful basketball season with Steph Curry on the floor, and especially with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson on the floor. I mean, since those guys became who we know them to be. And I know there are those guys, and I believe Draymond is absolutely one of them. In fact, I think I've even heard him say this, who believe that you can really use an ejection or a tech as a rallying point for the team. And there's a moment where you need that little extra spike of energy, and so you're willing to take the hit on you personally to energize the team. But when you look at this year, those are just not the type of situations that we're dealing with here. Nobody's upset at Yusuf Nurkic. Nobody's going to unite against Yusuf Nurkic who didn't do anything wrong. And you're just not at that stage of the game. Against the Timberwolves, like actually the Warriors did really play with some spunk after that. But is it worth in a game where you're already down Steph Curry getting both yourself and Klay Thompson who would not otherwise have been ejected? It would have just been a tech, I believe, if Draymond hadn't escalated the situation to that extent. Is it worth getting both of you thrown out of the game and ultimately losing because you're at such a talent deficit? No, it's not. So there's no way to defend what Draymond is doing right now. And you're right. Like, they have to get back on track winning basketball games. And you know what's a good way to do that is for Draymond to actually stay out there on the floor. <laughs> because it turns out he has a massive, massive impact on winning that we've seen for years and years with this team. They just aren't the same without him. In the NBA, the game can change in an instant. But no matter how the action unfolds, you know DraftKings Sportsbook has your back. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks on basketball. Win or lose, you get an instant dub. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NERDS. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code NERDS. The crown is yours.
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problems with gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles, 21-plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. But you know who started to win basketball games, Logan? Won five straight, 10 of their last 13? The LA Clippers. And I don't think either of you, either of us have been particularly fond of their contending ceiling, of the James Harden trade as some sort of cure-all for their issues, but what have you made of them starting to play some better basketball here? I've liked it. The Clippers have... The Clippers have looked good, and I've liked what I've seen out of Harden, too. I was really skeptical again. Uh, you, you said it. Not enough ball to mm-hmm. go around. You know what I mean? Uh, all these ball-dominant guys. I like how they've staggered stuff. Uh, Harden, Terrence Mann in the starting lineup. Russell Westbrook off the bench. Yeah. And they, they found a, a chemistry, a flow to the offense where Harden's setting the table for guys, setting up other guys. You know, it's not a Harden ISO possession. It's a pin down from Big Zoo. Let's get PG to rock and let him go to work. Let's get Kawhi to ball and let him go to work. You know, it's a little mm-hmm. more, there's a little more ball to go around. It's not, we don't need two basketballs. And uh, I think that's been encouraging. I think they found a flow there. I think we have to give a ton of credit to Kawhi Leonard for what he's doing. Damn, when he's healthy, man, he's yeah. sick. Kawhi's mm-hmm. unreal. 25, 6, and 4, and 54, 42, 92 splits over the last 13. Uh, they haven't beaten a ton of great competition. Uh, Houston twice, Dallas, San Antonio, Sacramento twice, uh, Golden State, Denver, Utah, Portland. Some good cal- some playoff caliber teams, some not, but again, encouraging from where they started. Um, and I've really liked what I've seen out of them defensively, too, after losing some of the wing depth that they had here. I was really concerned about them. Kawhi and PG have looked good holding up against wings. Man has at point of attack. And a huge credit to Big Zoo on the interior, man. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, he's holding players 15% uh, percent below their average inside six feet. I think that's the best mark in the league over the last 13 games. This isn't a cure-all, Carson. I think you're right. You know, I'm still not there with the Clippers because I think when we were looking at these hypothetical playoff matchups, I still don't like how the Clippers match up against some of these other teams with size, like... Minnesota has a size and athleticism advantage on them. I think LA has a size and athleticism advantage on them. I think Denver has an offensive, defensive continuity and physical advantage over the Clippers, right? So that is still where I think the Clippers fall short. They look better. They look a ton better defensively. But those are still my concerns. Their physical and athletic limitations, guys staying healthy, uh, Harden, Kawhi, PG, and... uh, and then my my concern is just, uh, I don't know, you know, we haven't seen them really beat uh, a big-time contender. They've beaten good playoff-caliber teams, but they don't have, like, a ton of convincing wins yet. So, I mean, they're trending in the right direction. A ton of credit to them because I didn't really see this coming. I think they've solved some of their issues, but I'm not ready to say that, you know, the Clippers are one of my favorite, uh, you know, even top four, top five contenders out West yet. Well, they did beat the Nuggets, of course, it was in Jokic's worst shooting game of his career where he goes 9 of 32. And I thought that they defended him well. I thought Zoo did a good job in one-on-one situations, post-ups. I thought that Kawhi and some other dudes provided really effective help. But at the end of the day, Jokic was just missing a lot of shots that he normally makes in his sleep. So yeah, Denver probably could have won that game. But, I mean, that's beating a really good team. The Clippers hung in there. They were down early in that when everything was falling for Denver. And they just kept coming. And... That was a quality win. They've beaten the Kings twice now, and they whooped on him yesterday. The Warriors game was a very, very weird win. So I agree with you. Like, it's not like they've beaten a whole bunch of world beaters here, but they have picked up a couple of quality wins, and they've just been playing much better basketball. And Logan, when this 10-3 and stretch starts, you know what also marks that exact same timeline? When they benched Russell Westbrook for Terrence Mann, which I think we were in absolute agreement was key when you were talking about solving that not enough ball to go around issue maybe take out of the starting lineup the guy who is the fourth best of all of your four players who really like to have the ball in their hands who is the least effective off ball and guess what they are now a much better defense 
because man is a better point of attack defender. Also, I got to say, just like all the dudes here are busting their asses on the perimeter, and Zoo is protecting the hell out of the rim, man. He is defending at an unbelievably high level, like almost all defense level, and they've also found a decent backup big in Tice, which they really didn't have at all through the very early stretch of this season. And then, offensively, man is just a much more intuitive fit. You have more shooting on the floor. You have a guy who is not going to try to create too much with the ball in his hands. And just this entire group is settling in more there, I think. They're moving the ball more. I mean, it's still not like the epitome of the beautiful game. It's not the 2014 Spurs. A lot of dudes are just still doing their thing one-on-one, -on -one, but you're seeing more swinging the rock to open guys on the perimeter, and there is more shooting out there to take advantage of that. And I do really like how PG fits in off-ball here. Like, that's what's nice is he's not an exclusively on-ball player. Harden pretty much is, unless it's like an open spot-up three that he doesn't have to really move off-ball to get open for. Kawhi can do some stuff curling off screens and whatnot, but he definitely likes to have the ball in his hands. PG is this lethal pick-and-roll creator, very good isolation, but also an awesome shooter off screens, really good spot-up shooter, and I think that they're doing a nice job drawing stuff up to make the most out of him off-ball so he can fit in alongside a couple of other stars offensively. But really, Harden does deserve credit because he has just embraced a role as a distributor, as a facilitator, really as the floor general here. His usage is way down. In these last 13 games, he's just 16 points, 8 assists tonight, but great efficiency, 64% true shooting. He is doing a good job dictating those actions to guys off ball. He's totally willing to just feed Kawhi when he's got a mismatch, when he's got an advantage, when he wants to go to work. And so he's done a nice job of accommodating the fit here in a way that I wasn't totally sure that he was. Now... Is he, come playoff time, going to be a high enough level threat as a scorer when we've seen him consistently regress there in recent years? Not sure we can say, but he is trending in the right direction just in terms of his mindset within this offense. And then Russ being down to 21 minutes a game, it's just a positive for this team. Now, I think he can be really dangerous attacking bench units. And what's nice is that with him out there and with four guys who are on-ball creators like this, you can pretty much always have two of them out there on the floor together. So you have some offensive punch against any unit, and that's the positive value that he brings. But alongside these other ball-dominant guys in the starting lineup, I think it was just too bad of a fit. There's too much potential for him to have one of those games where he just goes off the rail and totally over-exerts himself. So Kawhi is playing really well, as you said. To me, this is looking more like the Clippers team that I expected because I thought that they absolutely should go with this starting five. They're defending better than I expected right now. I do think there's some shot variance going in their favor. Teams just haven't shot well from deep at all against them in this stretch. No question they're defending much better than they were and they found the right personnel and they're playing with the right mentality there. But I'm with you. I said that I thought they were the fifth best team in the West when you're talking about playoff upside when they made this trade. And then they started to look maybe a bit uglier than that for the first handful of games. But now that's about where I feel they lie again. And I'll tip my cap to you, too. I mean, you said, uh, you know, leading up to this, I didn't anticipate this at all. I thought the Clippers kind of sold to this trade. I didn't anticipate uh, them reaching this level defensively. I didn't expect an offensive turnaround. And you said, I mean, even after the really crappy start we saw uh, after the Harden trade, you were like, you know, I expect this offense to be a lot better. And mm -hmm. they've been thriving on the defensive side of the ball, but the offense has looked better. And I will say, too, we are critical of the Clippers come playoff time, I think rightfully so, for the reasons that we've laid out. But there is value in having this many creators against, you know, you think about teams that don't have this wealth of creators, and then you think about one of the biggest primary issues with the Clippers, and that's health. We saw it, you know, with Russ last year in the playoffs. No, they didn't win the series, but... A couple of games where he needed to take yeah. over and exert himself more, he could Definitely. prove to be valuable. So, I mean, if there's a couple of games come playoff time where PG or Kawhi are out and you need another guy to come in, Russ can help you in a series, you know. Uh, I'm certainly not ready to crown the Clippers or anything, but I'm also not ready to count them out either. Uh, I would like to see them. They've got Bones Highland. Uh, I'd like to see them shop one or two of these guys and maybe Russ, too, if there's any value. I don't know. I'd like to see them make a move and get another wing. If they could get mm -hmm. another defensive wing to play 
15 to 20 a night who can shoot, who can play defense, take on some of these bigger guys. Because again, I just think they need to get more athletic. They need more size. They need to be more physical. If they can get that guy, I think I might, you know, be ready to take the Clippers up another notch. Yeah. And it has become more painful that they did give up Nick Batum and get back PJ Tucker in the trade just because Batum is playing at a much higher level and PJ has been unplayable, hasn't been out on the floor for these last couple weeks. But I don't think it's that shocking that this team really struggled out of the gate. It's not the most intuitive fit. They didn't have the right starting lineup and they have started to find more of a rhythm here and they're playing better basketball. It's like, this is closer to what we expected, but I think some of those fundamental concerns remain the same. Okay. I want to talk about the team that has been the best in the Western Conference this year because I've seen some comparisons floating around between this current Minnesota Timberwolves team and the last great regular season team that Rudy Gobert was on, that being the 2021 Jazz, who had a dominant regular season. They were the best team in the regular season, in fact, and then lost in the second round to the Clippers, and that was like the ultimate, oh my God, Rudy exposed series. Clippers go small ball. Terrence Mann has 39 because Rudy can't hang on the perimeter and he can't abuse any sort of mismatches offensively. What do you think, Logan? Which of those two teams would you say is better? That Jazz team or this Timberwolves team that we're seeing right now? I'm taking this year's Timberwolves team, Carson, and for me, it's not really terribly close. And that may seem kind of surprising considering how dominant that Jazz team was in the regular season. Uh, Third in offensive rating, fourth in defensive rating, number one in net rating. They go 52-20. and Uh, They win in the first round before losing in six to the Clippers where... Uh, you noted Gobert kind of gets exposed. You know, they run five out, uh, small ball, Nick Batum at the five, and they just spray on the Jazz. Uh, now, that was without Kawhi, too, right? That was just PG going nuts. The last it? last two games, there was no Kawhi, yeah. Yeah, and so I can understand why, you know, people may be skeptical of this Timberwolves team, but I think there are some real big differences between these teams. We can start one. I think the Timberwolves just have a – a number one advantage with Anthony Edwards over Donovan Mitchell. Like, I love Donovan. I think he's a tremendous scorer. When I think you're looking at these guys at their apexes, uh, I think Ant's a better defender. Uh, and I think I think Ant's a better player right now. Like, in terms of just take over, being able to take over a game physically, jump shooting-wise, I take Ant as my number one. But the biggest thing between these two teams has to be defensively. Like, yeah, the Jazz, I don't know if they had a, a plus defender. On, I mean, what, Royce O'Neal? Like, Royce yeah. O'Neal's probably your best perimeter defender. The Timberwolves have a ton of plus defenders here. I mean, Anthony Edwards, McDaniels at the point of attack. Um, you know, you've got Carl Anthony Towns playing the best defensive basketball of his career. That's the big difference to me is that I don't think you can exploit this Timberwolves team the way you could Utah. Come playoff time, yeah. like, maybe they try it. Maybe you go small ball and see what happens. You know, I don't know what hypothetical matchup they're going to draw, but maybe you try it. I just don't see how that happens with all the length out here. I don't see Gobert being drug out of the paint consistently enough to exploit that. Like, again, I can't say because, you know, we're not there yet. We haven't seen the playoffs. We don't know what teams are going to try. And that's ultimately how you win playoff series is tactics like that. The Miami Heat do not make it to the NBA finals last season without expert coaching from Eric Spolster, right? The Clippers don't survive that series if they run their normal offense. But you make these changes and you see if they work. I just don't see how it's that exploitable with this Timberwolves team. So, yeah, the Jazz are probably a better regular season offense in that team. And statistically, they're a similar regular season defense. But I just don't think you can exploit this Timberwolves team the way you did the Jazz. I agree. And I do like this Timberwolves team more. I don't want to totally diminish that Jazz team, though, because I thought that team was pretty legitimately great. I thought that they had a beautiful offensive system and identity. They had shooters everywhere. I mean, they had, to me, the two best candidates for sixth man of the year in the same season, that being Joe Ingles and Jordan Clarkson. That's pretty rare. The one thing that could be exploited was their perimeter defense. And I think Gobert gets a lot of flack for that, but absolutely the guys around him let them down. And also, I remember highlighting before the playoffs that year, the one matchup out West in which I did not like the Jazz was against the Clippers because of how easily they could go five out, how comfortable they were in those lineups and how bad of a matchup that was for Utah. So Gobert absolutely bears some responsibility to that, but it's also understanding that like the problem isn't just that, oh my God, look at Rudy, he can't guard on the perimeter. 
you're negating his greatest advantage. He is an all-time great rim protector. And when you don't have to attack the rim to create great offense, that's when you are really winning the matchup regardless. It's not just about him struggling out there necessarily because sometimes he's okay on the perimeter. It's you are taking him out of his element and you are making it so he can't do what he does best. But this defense to me is absolutely built to last in a playoff setting in a way that Utah defense wasn't because of what you mentioned. You have elite point of attack guys in Jaden McDaniels and dialed in Anthony Edwards. You have another big who guards post players very well and offers additional support on the interior. I mean, even depth pieces, right? You have a Kyle Anderson. It's just so superior, a supporting cast. And the other key factor to me, Logan, is that you can't go small against this Timberwolves team because Rudy Gobert is not going to punish you, right? I mean, he's gotten a little bit more aggressive with his post-ups these last couple years, but ultimately he's not skilled enough there. He's not physical enough there. You can probably get away with it. What you can't get away with is going small against this massive two-big lineup, which also includes Carl Anthony Towns, who absolutely will go at your smaller wings one-on-one. -on -one. If it's downhill as a driver where he's just more physical, if it is out of the post. So that's not tenable to me anymore. You just can't do it. You are now going to get abused and punished on the other side of the ball for that. On the glass, you are going to get destroyed. So it's just a different dynamic. And I also think having a legit star number two offensively at all is a different dynamic because... Utah had this great collective, right? They had a bunch of smart guys. They had shooting everywhere with Bojan, with Conley, with Joe Ingles. But having a guy like Cat who can absolutely abuse mismatches, who might be your best offensive player in any given series, that's a difference maker to me. Donovan always felt this overwhelming burden, and I think part of this is just how he's wired, to go crazy in these playoffs tonight. Just to go out there and try to drop 40 every night and shoot 15 threes every night. And, I mean, he had those consecutive playoff runs where he played really, really well, and then you see 2022 when that shooting comes back down to earth. Boy, the shot quality's pretty rough. It's not necessarily the best for team offense. Anthony Edwards doesn't have that sort of singular burden here. Yeah, he has to do a lot. He has to rise to a superstar level if they want to like legitimately go out there and try to win the title. But Cat is a sort of release valve and a guy he can lean on individually in a way that there wasn't anybody like that on the Jazz. And then I think just overall, and this is in line with the you can't go small against them point, this is a bigger, more athletic, more physically imposing team. They are built to make you uncomfortable and they are built to go right at you and go through you. And that just generally scales very well to playoff settings. When we think about recent champions, if it's the Lakers in 2020, biggest team in basketball. If it's the Bucks in 2021, massive frontline, big athletic, physical team. The Nuggets last year, you may not think about them as those same sort of bruisers, but they sure were big. And they were going to kill you on the glass like... That's just an advantage that that Jazz team outside of Gobert really didn't have. They were soft defensively. They weren't very big and athletic in the front court. So, I mean, maybe they're not the same regular season team as the Jazz. Now, I think that they still can be. They've been a great regular season team. But in a playoff setting, yes, I think that they have a higher upside. They can't reach that sort of offensive ceiling but they are going to be so much better defensively. That Jazz team, when it came to the playoffs, I mean, I think they were 13th of 16 teams in defensive rating, and they never defended well in the playoffs. They would turn out top five defenses in the regular season because Gobert was so great, and then when it came time to actually exploit some of the weaknesses there, playoff teams had a field day, and this Minnesota defense is just, I mean, top three in the league for sure in a playoff setting. Let me ask you this. Do you worry about them at all against smaller, quicker teams? Say a hypothetical like against the Kings. I don't know how that would come up. Uh, if they played the Kings, like, do you think the Kings could outrun them? Do you worry about their transition defense with the two big looks? I think that the Kings are a relatively good matchup for them in terms of how they can mm -hmm. produce offensively as such a perimeter-centric core. But I think that that is offset by the fact that the T-Wolves are just going to bully them physically, offensively. True. True. So, no, I don't think that Sacramento's a team. I certainly wouldn't pick them to win and, that series. And true. I mean, a lot of their offense is generated, especially in the playoffs last year, it was Fox. It was Monk downhill. Mm -hmm. If Gobert hypothetically could run drop in Sabonis, 
I think they could beat them in the transition game, but I really think half court. I think half court offense against any uh, any team against the T Wolves is kind of going to be a burden, man. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be really, really rough. So I think that is the biggest difference maker of them all. But this is a very specific topic, but I think it's an interesting one. I made videos about both Alperon Shengun and DeMontis Sabonis last season and talked about how Shengun long-term could have a Sabonis-esque impact when you think about this playmaking big who then is going to maybe not have the best defensive impact and I know that a lot of people were calling Shengun Baby Jokic. My point was long-term, he's probably closer to uh, a Sabonis kind of guy. With the leap that he's taken this year, though, just flat out right now, who do you think is better, Logan, Shengun or Sabonis? It's a really tough question. You know, I I like Domas a lot. I'm a Kings fan, and I appreciate a lot of what Domas does. Uh Against smaller bigs who are less physically imposing, he can dominate on the glass. He's a phenomenal passer, um, and he's got decent touch, but I, I really do. I think there's an offensive gap between Sengun and Sabonis in terms of just creation, man. Like, I think that Sengun has a deeper post bag. Oh, yeah. Um, I think he's got better touch. I think he's got better body control. I think he's a better shooter. He's a better vertical athlete. Like they're, yeah. they're similar. They're similar, but you know, I, I worry still about Sabonis in a playoff setting against the Golden State Warriors. That to me was the difference maker. Is that Fox and Monk are playing their asses off, getting downhill, dominating the, the interior, getting bucket after bucket, and Looney's just dropping every time. Mm-hmm. Hey Domas, go ahead, take this eighteen footer. Go ahead, take the three. We don't care. We're gonna let you shoot all game long. I don't think you can do that with Sengun. And defensively, you know, I mean, it's not like Sabonis is one hell of a stopper. I think Sengun's a better vertical athlete than him. I think they're comparable rebounders. And when you look at the age difference, I give the nod to Sengun. But right now, I think Sengun's a better offensive player, man. And considering that I don't think they're both great defensively, I'm going to take him. I just, I still worry about Sabonis completely disappearing in a playoff setting. I I don't think I would worry about that with Sengun, man. I think his bag is too deep. Yeah, I think that that's the key difference. You have to really respect someone as a scorer in a playoff setting if they are completely an offensively oriented player for them to have their peak value. And Sabonis has not proven that he is the level jump shooter who needs to be given a bunch of attention to, and he has not proven that he is the sort of skilled one-on-one post scorer to where against big physical guys who can hold up, who he can't just go through lower in his shoulder, he hasn't proved that he can be very effective in those situations. So that's number one. Shangun is just a more skilled post score. He does have better touch. He has a much deeper bag. If it's the use of fakes, he's a real trickster. I mean, he's got good body control. He loves his spin move. And then he's been awesome for mid-range this year, shooting 56% there. And he's still not super comfortable from three. I don't know if that ever becomes a dynamic element of his game, but just the fact that he can absolutely hold you accountable if you play off him, if you leave him open from 15 feet. That's something that Sabonis hasn't consistently shown. And then when it comes to their passing, I think Shengun is much more creative. And that's where the Jokic comparisons come into play, right? His ability to disguise where he's going with his eyes and deliver the ball from all sorts of different angles and with all sorts of deception. That's really fun, but it's also valuable because you're not letting the defense in on what you're thinking, what you're about to do. And that in and of itself creates an advantage because they can't anticipate what you're doing. Sabonis is a very good conductor, but he doesn't do much of that above and beyond improvisational genius. Oh my God, how did he see that stuff? Like he racks up a lot of assists just by executing the offense. If it's running handoffs, if it's just having good timing and feel on a designed cut or off ball action. And so I do think that that flair advantage for Shangun is actually meaningful in his ability to create offensive opportunities for others instead of just being a big man who you can run your design stuff through, which is still valuable, but it's not quite as valuable. And then he is the better defender right now, Shangun. And that was where I was most negative about him in my video last year. Now, I made it clear that he's not baby Jokic just because, I mean, there's certain things that Jokic has that are so tough to replicate. Number one, 
his monstrous size, right? He's 285, he's crazy strong, he's taller than Shangun. Shangun cannot match that sort of dominant physical imposition. And then also it's the all-time touch from Jokic. Like Shangun is solid there, but Shangun could not shoot 45% from deep in a playoff run like Jokic just did on any sort of volume. He can't make 65-70% of his floaters and hooks and all this stuff. So those are sort of the two key central tenets. And then defensively, I was like, he's not going to have that same sort of monstrous rebounding value that Jokic does because of the size. He doesn't have that sort of crazy length. I think Jokic has a 7-6 wingspan or something up there. Maybe it's 7-4. He doesn't have those sort of elite hands and he's not that smart. So it was like both of these guys are working at physical deficiencies. Yes, Shangun is more athletic, but he's also noticeably smaller. And so he probably doesn't have like the cerebral advantages to overcome that in the same way that Jokic does. But I think Shangun has taken strides there. I still wouldn't call him a good defender. I actually don't think that he's always very smart positionally. I don't think he's a very good athlete in space. And he's still not big for a five. But, I mean, just in terms of literally protecting the rim, he is a good vertical athlete. He's holding players 9.6% below their average field goal percentage at the rim. So he hasn't been a hindrance in as much of a defensive limitation as I thought he would be. So to me, I mean, Domas has the advantage in terms of rebounding mm -hmm. and that's kind of it. I know that, you know, we really liked Sengun uh, in the pre-draft process yeah. uh, when he came out. Me, you, Carvel uh, did a pre-draft show. Uh, we're enamored with Sengun. Yeah. We immediately thought... There's no way this guy's bad, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? He's just he's too skilled to be yeah. a bad offensive player. He's going to be good. He's going to be solid. That's where I want to ask you, right? Do you see a higher ceiling? I know you don't think he's going to be Jokic, right? I mean, Jokic is Jokic, yeah. man. Yeah. Do you see a higher ceiling, though, with Sengun still? Yeah. I think that he is continuing to go on a very promising trajectory. And like I said, I thought that he would fall somewhere in the Sabonis range, maybe a uh -huh. little bit more upside offensively because of the same two factors that I talked about now, where he's just concretely above and better than him. But I think that he's already playing better than Sabonis. He's playing at an all-star level right now. And to me, the key is if he can hang in there defensively, I was like, can you build a capable defense around this guy at the five? I wasn't sure. And the Rockets yeah. have already done it. In fact, they've built a good defense around him so yeah i think that this guy is absolutely a star big man for years to come and i think that he scales better to the playoff world than sabonis because he is so much more skilled offensively 100 i think yeah i think an all-star ceiling's about right i i see that coming and it's uh it could be an all-star this year dude. yeah for sure i was gonna say i mean it's happened really really fast dude it has happened yeah. exceedingly fast yeah and you're absolutely right. I mean, we were really high on him as a prospect. It's just very rare to see that sort of post-scoring polish. And he was the MVP of a uh -huh. legit European league at 18 years old. His production there was crazy impressive. Like, there was just stuff that you don't often see. And now, I mean, for people who don't know, he's dropping over 20 points a night, over yep. 9 rebounds a night, 5.6 assists on better than 58% true shooting. Not great efficiency, but still above league average. The dude is balling, and he has been a huge driving factor in the Rockets' success, which you also see with the on-off numbers. They're eight and a half points per under better with him on the floor than off it. So, shout out to him. Sorry, Domas, but you have been surpassed by a more enjoyable European big man. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for us here today, folks. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, as always, you can find all of our full shows with video on the Nerd Sesh YouTube page. You can also listen to the podcast across audio platforms. You can follow us across social, Instagram and TikTok at Nerd Sesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. And you can join our Discord if you want. That is at the link tree across our social media bios. You can talk basketball, football with us in there. Just be part of our community. And as it is the holiday season, you can check out that Nerd Sesh merch at thevolume.com. We've got hats. Logan's wearing them. We've got hoodies logan's wearing them we've got <laughs> flags they're behind logan we've got shirts as well so you can find all of that also at our link tree or at the volume.com and if you want to get a cameo for a loved one for the holidays we are on there as well so with that as always appreciate you guys i've been carson brabber i have been logan camden and this was nerd sash
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's Wee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.